That song was about David meeting Goliath. We'll talk about this later. Would you take your Bible and turn, please, once again to the Old Testament, to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 23. As we continue in looking at the best of things in the worst of times out of the life of Elisha. Do you ever wonder why things are so bad right now? Well, we'll keep talking about it <laughs> the next few weeks. And I, I hope after the 14th, I will be uh, actually preaching an evangelistic meeting in Elvis's hometown of Tupelo, Mississippi. And uh, if he shows up, I'll tell you. It'd be a great illustration. And then I, uh, at least the way we planned it, I'll be back uh, after that week to preach a final message here. So looking forward to uh, the rest of our study. Why is it so hard for us to believe in the invisible, to think it's not real if we can't see it, hold it, touch it, examine it, when there's such things that are unseen like love, electricity, radio waves, these are all real. But God wants us to see the unseen. In Hebrews 11, it particularly talks about that. And it says that Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. And the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 5 said that he saw what the Father was doing, and he then did it. He heard what the Father was saying in the spirit world, and then he spoke it. And I believe that in the life of Elisha, we see a powerful picture of how one man called the man of God had amazing insight and even military intelligence. Someone told me, someone, uh, someone made the comment, I think it was, rather dumb that it's an oxymoron to talk about military intelligence. But you know that you need it. We remember when we were hunting for Osama bin Laden, mastermind of 9-11 attacks. And when finally SEAL Team 6 had taken him out, here was their one succinct message back to home. Geronimo, E-K-I-E-A. E-K-I-A, enemy killed in action. In other words, Osama bin gotten. Because a lot of people had been looking, and even more, many had been praying. God used Elisha, not just with individuals, but with the nation. And so would you stand with me, please, as we look at 2 Kings Chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned them. He warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged 
over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of the servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord. And said, strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them. That is that whole army to Samaria. When they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? That's what he wanted to do. He answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? set bread and water before them so they, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come against the land of Israel. You may be seated. The Arameans were the Syrians. And their king was so frustrated that every time he made a military decision, for some reason, the king of Israel had been warned. And he thought, surely there is some kind of special Israeli intelligence at work here. Maybe there's a traitor in my inner circle, a mole in the midst, a bug in my bedroom, even the words I say in the bedroom, somehow he knows what they are. We've got to get this spook named Elisha. And so he sent an army to surround, and frankly, he would have taken him prisoner, probably tortured him, made him an example to all the people, but if he couldn't do that, he would kill him for sure. But this was a tremendous test of faith and prayer for the man of God, and even more for the servant who had to learn the lessons that you and I need to learn today. The Bible says in Psalm, my eyes are toward you, O Lord, that you may deliver me. 
Now, the first main idea that I want you to see as we look at these unusual spiritual realities, as we see the unseen, we must see the unseen dimension of evil forces. You see that in verses 8 through 12. General Satan is in charge of the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, as Paul said in Ephesians 6. And the king of Syria was a worshiper of the god of war in the temple of Rimon or Rimmon. He worshiped where demons were involved, and as Paul said later to the Corinthians, they are behind every idol, every false religion. And so he was a demonized evil man, not a man of God. Satan uses three weapons that I want to mention to you today. He uses infiltration of our thoughts. He will speak into our minds. You, you haven't lived very long if you don't know that. You say, where in the world did that come from? But since he cannot take the, the believer in Christ to hell, he wants to control him with his hand on him. If he cannot control our destiny, then he wants to interrupt our journey. And Satan will put things in your mind. He will incite you to sin. He will try to instill in you all kinds of hurtful, negative things, doubt, despair, depression. He will do everything he can to try to bring your thoughts under his captivity. And this is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I never watched the old Seinfeld show, but I heard recently that the George Costanza character said, it's not a lie if you believe it. How many are like that in our culture today? If you tell enough lies, you believe it and everybody else will believe it. It sounds like a political playbook to me. But you wonder how in the world does Satan get us to believe lies? Because most of us are not discerning, that's why. My old mentor spiritually, Dr. T.W. Hunt, once said that Satan is like, his voice is like the buzzing of a mosquito when you're out camping trying to go to sleep. I've been there. And yet, it's, it's aggravating, it's irritating, it's bugging you, but the voice of the Holy Spirit is like the dove that gently, peacefully rests upon you. Not a pushing, nagging, irritating voice. Do this, don't do that, is often of Satan. And then Satan uses the weapon of intimidation through his threats. He will try to scare you into thinking that he has more power than God himself. He will try to impress us that if we do a certain thing for righteousness, we will pay a terrible price and it won't be worth it. I was hiking one day in the Colorado mountains near Beaver Creek and Vail in that area, and I came upon a sign of some tips, and, and the, the name of the sign was, What to Do If You Meet a Black Bear on the Trail. 
which is a very real possibility. And here are the tips about if you meet a black bear. Don't look at him in the eye. Don't make any sudden movements. Don't try to run away. He's faster than you are. But gently try to slide off the trail down the hill away from him, being careful not to do sudden movements. And then it said, but he may run up to you and stand on his hind feet. And I thought, okay, he now is going to encounter an eye movement from this guy. And then it, it concluded by saying, if you have to, fight. Amen? I am. But I wanted to write on the sign, in case you meet a grizzly bear, pray for the rapture. There's nothing else you can do about it. But you see, Satan is that bear, and he is on his hind legs. He is rearing, and he is a roaring lion, the Bible says. He tries to scare us and intimidate us, and yet the Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In 1 John 4.4. 4. That's why Elisha wanted the servant to know that greater are those with us than those with the devil. But then also Satan uses the weapon of our presumption of our strengths. That we really shoot ourselves with our own gun. That we think we are uh, able to handle it. And basically self-centeredness and prayerlessness go hand in hand. If you think you don't have to pray, you probably are already in danger. And yet the Bible says for every decision, every temptation, we are to pray and seek the Lord and take every thought captive. Now, I'm reading from uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, you, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to, of course. But Paul talks about this spiritual warfare in the unseen realm in chapter 6. It's a tremendous study. And verse 10 begins by saying, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Then he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then over in verse 18, after he talks about the armor of the believer, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And so there are two things that I want you to remember out of this. You ready? Don't just stand there, do something. The second is, don't just do something, stand there. Did you get that? Don't just stand there. There are things God wants you to do, and certainly to pray, to discern, to, to wisely make certain decisions. Like Mary told the servants at the wedding at Cana, whatever he says to you, do it. Do something. Don't just be passively uh, thinking that you're just going to let God do everything. 
But at the same time, don't just do something, stand there. Stand firm, the Bible says three times in Ephesians 6. Stand firm. Stand in the truth of the Lord. Resist the devil, but at the same time, you do it by praising him and worshiping, as the song said just a moment ago. Not running ahead, but bowing down and seeking the Lord. Have you got that? Here's the second great truth. We must see the unseen dimension of spiritual unity. In verse 15, I think it's significant that the servant came to Elisha, and that then Elisha involved him by praying in what God was up to. You see, the servant made a very important uh, comment when he said, what are we going to do? Not, what are you going to do, Elisha? Hey, I'm out of here. You're on your own, buddy. You pick this fight, now you, you end it. No, he said, we. And we are in this together. This church, this ministry, the whole body of Christ, the kingdom of God is we and not just I. I get tired of hearing that old cliche, there's no I in team. But the fact is, all of us make a difference by how we live and how we pray and how we serve the Lord. If you want to know how to stop gossip and criticism and relational attacks in the church, let me give you a quick answer to that. Whenever someone comes to you to treat your ears like a garbage can and starts gossiping and telling unkind or maybe even untrue things about someone, why don't you say this to them? I appreciate that you feel like you can share your concerns with me, but let's pray about this. After all, God is the one who can change things. Let's pray right now, as a matter of fact. And this person who is so bent on bending your ear, all of a sudden is in a bowed knee position, perhaps. And you pray with that person and then finish and say, now, let's keep praying about this. And in a few days, I'm going to call you or you call me and let's see what God is saying about how this is going to be fixed. Don't you think that would make a difference? And then third, we must see the unseen dimension by faith. In verses 16 and 17, this is the crux of the whole story. Now, if we see only the visible, we probably will respond with fear. This is why the prophet said, do not fear. We all tend to fear. I mean, there is no doubt that there are things to be afraid of. But what do we do with that fear? That profound theologian, John Wayne, <laughs> said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Now, I'll tell you one guy who saddled up, and that was young David. David went to check on his brothers and bring them some uh, brownies and, uh, you know, banana bread from home. They were in the battle line facing the Philistines. And then he heard the taunts of the Goliath giant. This giant was insulting God and the armies of Israel. And if you want to look at it over in the Scripture, 
Uh, well, let me just quote it to you. David meets King Saul, and he says, basically, uh, why are men's hearts failing for fear? This uncircumcised Philistine has no business insulting the Lord God of Israel. And so, uh, back and forth, David uh, finally resists Saul's armor. He goes out with his slingshot, and he goes to the, it's in the valley of Elah. And sometimes there's a stream that flows through there, and this smooth stone is from that very stream area, that very valley of Elah. I've written it on there so it's not mistaken for a rock to throw. (laughs) The valley of Elah. And so David put this stone in his slingshot, the same one that he had used to attack the lion and the bear and protect his sheep. And he hurled that. He said, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And he took out Goliath with a smooth stone. But why do we fear? Jesus said, in the last days, men's hearts will be failing them for fear. If we see the unseen, we respond with faith. If we recognize God is at work in a way that we can't always see and know, and that He has forces on our side that are greater than those with the enemy. Paul said to young Timothy, we fight the good fight of faith. Now, faith is one of my favorite subjects. As you know, I've been through tremendous trials. And after 50 years of pastoring, you encounter just about everything over 50 years. But real faith is dead to doubt, death to discouragement, and blind to impossibilities. The faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted, as someone said. And I believe that God is calling us because our first response should be prayer, not our last resort. My old friend Adrian Rogers said that. And I keep remembering the first response should not be fear or running away, but seeking the Lord in faith and responding in prayer. And so that's what David did. Now, I'm looking at Psalm 18. It bears uh, you looking at it with me, if you can, because this is a tremendous platform for prayer, okay? In Psalm 18, verse 1, David said, and this is his praise song, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Who do we talk to? Who do we believe in? The Lord God himself. You realize that there are nine different titles for God in these three verses. As a matter of fact, God meets us in our need, most of all, more than any other time, and He wants to apply these truths to our situation as our rock, as our fortress, as our Lord, 
our deliverer. I love that. I love that promise. As a matter of fact, the very Hebrew language of the Old Testament contains 23 different terms for deliverance. He is the God of all deliverances. And so we look to him. Don't be uh, put off because David said, my God, because he is your God. He is my Lord and Savior, my personal Lord and Savior. It's that you have an intimate relationship with your God. That's why Thomas, when he met the risen Lord and believed in him, said, my Lord and my God. This is why it just so hurts my spirit and insults God when I hear people say, my God. He's not their God, or they wouldn't be taking his name in vain. OMG should be struck from our language. But who is answering? Who is God is. When does he answer? The moment you call on him. May the Lord answer us in the day we call, Psalm 20, verse 9 says. Daniel met an angel. Boy, he was going through tremendous spiritual warfare. And then he realized that the angels of God were fighting against the demons of hell, and particularly the head demons that called the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia. I think there's a prince of the United States as well, a demon archangel of some sort. And as, as he was praying, listen to what the angel said to him in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 3. He said, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, confessing sin and so forth. Then in verse 20, Gabriel comes. Now while I was speaking and praying, and confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, Gabriel came. Now, look down at verse 23. At the beginning, he said, of your supplications, Daniel, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, and give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. The day he called on the Lord, the Lord set in motion the answer to that prayer. The Lord sent that angel. Daniel couldn't see it or know it. And then in chapter 10, verse 14, now I have, another angel said, another angel, maybe the same one, I'm not, I didn't study it, but now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. And he gives this whole uh, vision interpretation. And da Daniel was going through an enormously difficult time. But look at verse 12. Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. Don't many of us believe that, hey, I've got I've to work up that prayer, you know, period of weeks and days and years and what, whatever. No, on the day, in the name of Jesus, under His authority, 
in His righteousness, that in sincerity you call on the Lord, He sets in motion answering your prayer. What a blessing, what a thrilling testimony that is. We can't see it. We don't know what's going on in that realm. But God is at work. And so we ask in prayer. We respond in faith. Oh, man, I love this. I love this. Because, you see, faith has assurance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of what? Things not seen, Hebrews 11.1 1 says. It has assurance, conviction. But also, faith has allies, the angels of God. And so he talks about asking that the servant's eyes, eyes be open. And you notice Daniel is, I'm sorry, Elisha is praying twice. Oh Lord, I pray. And he is asking God to show that young man attending him what the heavenly host look like and what they're doing. I'm not saying God will do that for, for us. But he opened his eyes and guess what he saw? That whole area was surrounded by flaming warrior angels with the heavy armor of chariots of fire. And there were more of them than in the army of the Syrians. And they had bivouacked all around that little place where the prophet was. Amazing, isn't it? Now, what does the Bible say? Hebrews says that we have angels of God who are sent forth for the heirs of salvation. They're called ministering spirits. Hebrews 1.14. The Bible says we not only have angels for us and with us, but we have angels over us to guard us. Psalm 91.11. God gives His angels charge over us to guard us in all our ways. For us, over us, and around us. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. Wow! Isn't that amazing? Even children have guardian angels, according to Jesus. Matthew 18, 10. You know, there's a popular phrase today that says, He was there for me. Or, uh, in my crisis, she was there for me. And that's a wonderful thing, to have Christian friends. But the angels are there for you as well. They ministered at least twice to Jesus in the Gospels, in the wilderness with the temptations, and in those dark hours of Gethsemane, just before His trial. They minister. I don't know what they do. We don't worship angels. We don't uh, pray to angels. We pray to the Lord God, but we ask God to dispatch His angels. We ask God to station His angels around the perimeter of this place where the prophets of God are. You ought to be doing prayer walking over at that new campus that you're buying. You ought to be, every time you drive past there, you ought to be praying for that place and you ought to be praying for this place as we gather here. Is the Lord here? There's no place, any place quite like this place, so this must be the place. 
Jacob said, the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. The angels are here with us. But here's a fourth thing, and frankly, this is what I'm really, really pumped about as much as anything. We must experience the unseen dimension of unceasing prayer. And you see that in verses 18 to 30. The word pray in Hebrew means to judge and to discern the importance of something. Uh, why am I asking God for this? In other words, the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him, says Proverbs sixteen twenty nine, And so we can ask. Now, 71 times in the New Testament, it speaks of asking in prayer. It's called petition. There are those Christians, and I, I've known some of them, wonderful godly men of God who say that we don't need to ask, but just praise the Lord. That you, when you come into real maturity, you no longer are asking for things, but you are just praising Him and worshiping Him. Well, we certainly need to praise God. But there are words for that in the Bible. That's not the word that Elisha is using. It's not the word in the New Testament when it says that hitherto have you asked nothing in my name, said Jesus. Ask that your joy may be full. And so we can ask. We can ask. We can petition. And he prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant. Each day when you leave your time with the Lord, you need to ask yourself, what have I asked of God today? And what am I believing him for today? Don't leave that time without asking God to show you how to ask and pray. But then we ask fervently. There, there is a, a sense in this, the language. You can't quite see it in your text, no matter what translation you have. One translation says, Oh Lord, I pray. Another says, Oh Lord, please, with the same uh, requesting language of when he wanted a double portion of the Holy Spirit. But he fervently was praying. And the Bible says that the church fervently prayed for Peter when he was put in prison. Prayed to God for Peter fervently. Acts 12.5. Here's three tests. Do I really believe this? Do I really want this? Do I really mean this? It's not your loudness. It's asking those three questions. I've preached in Korea, South Korea, and Places in Africa and around the world, India and so forth. And there are a lot, of, a lot of these wonderful places where they get louder and louder and louder in their praying, thinking that that gets God's ear. God's ear is attuned to fervency. Do I really believe this? That's conviction. Want this? That's desire and motivation. And mean this? That's sincerity. Then we ask expectantly. Uh, just when Elisha prayed, he expected God to give him the answer. No doubt about it. What delights God? He loves, he rejoices in his creation. He loves to hear the angels praise him. He delights in everything in his universe that he has created. But here's the one thing God loves the most. 
other than people coming to faith in Christ. Revelation 5.8, the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you get that? He's a connoisseur of prayer. Like fine perfume, he has collected all of the prayers of every believer throughout all the ages. That's why they're so important to God. And he remembers them. He doesn't even need Prevagen. He's God. Right? And God doesn't consider anything as too small or too unworthy or too human when we pray to Him. We ought to be expected to say, God, you're listening, and I know it. Then we need to ask humbly. One translation says that Elijah said, please, O Lord. We know that he was humble before the Lord. Earlier it said, the, the, God whom, uh, the God of whom before I stand. And the before I stand idea is accountability. He was humbled before God. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Lord, I, I, have, I have nothing that admits me into your presence, but I come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need, according to Hebrews 4. Mercy means you can't demand it because you don't deserve it. But you come boldly with confidence and say, Lord, here is my request. Lord, we're about to get killed over here. We need you to step in and show up and show off. But then we ask compassionately. <laughs> Can't leave this out, verses 18 to 23. His second prayer was, Lord, strike them with blindness. They thought they had seen, but now they can't see physically. That is the army of the Syrians. And then, this is such a great picture, it's almost funny. He leads them all the way into the camp of their enemy, the king of Israel. They, can, they have no idea. One guy's holding on to another. And then the Lord answers another prayer. Open their eyes, Lord. And guess what? That's the third prayer. Guess what? They look around, they see their captives. But instead of killing them, Elisha tells the king, feed them. And it could be this is a covenant feast because he had compassion. He did not win them in war and battle. I believe God told Elisha what to do. Normally, enemies would have been taken out. But I believe the Lord knew that the land needed rest from these raids. And so when they went back to the king, something happened spiritually that changed the entire national situation. When I was preaching in Louisville, Kentucky, I've uh, been preached at the seminary there a number of times in Baptist College. And Dr. Moeller, the president, took me to the Cave Hill Cemetery. I wasn't sure I wanted to go to the cemetery. But it was amazing, the headstones we saw. But the one that made such an impression on me negatively was of two gay lovers who had both died of AIDS, both around the same time. And here's what their headstone read. 
Life is a rich banquet, but hungry beggars starve to death. What a negative view of life. God has a wonderful feast. That's why in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, all the nations are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb because Jesus has not only died for us, He's praying for us. Would you bow your head in prayer, please? What is the Lord asking you today to do? To say to someone, to give, to help, how to pray. He's calling, He's asking you. He's doing something that we can't even see. But I'm asking that right now, and I've been praying this for some time, that God would do something powerful that no one can explain or understand. What is he doing in your life? In just a moment, Mark and the girls are going to sing an invitation song. And I'm going to stand here at the front, and we'll have a prayer team that will be coming down. And they'll pray with you after the service as well. But if you've never come to that feast, that banquet, the end of Revelation says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And He's calling you to come, and we want to show you how to accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And know for sure that you're going to heaven and be at that marriage feast of the Lamb of God. And before I pray, how many of you would say to me, Hayes, I have some, something very specific I'm praying about right now. Could I just see your hands? All over? Yeah? Yeah. Just take that to God right now. Lord, in Jesus' name, we look to you and trust you. Draw people to yourself today, Lord. In Jesus' name.